This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. And for us to have our weekly check-in with what is going on in the United States. And Reggie Giacchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News, is with us. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. I don't think there's anything going on down in the States today. Is there? Like, seems quiet day. Quiet, it's over. really quiet. Uh, we're being sarcastic, of course, because yesterday came the bombshell that uh, former President Donald Trump is facing criminal charges. He has been indicted. So, Reggie, what is this all about? This is a big deal, Simi. Never before in American history has a former president, uh, a current president, faced indictment for charges. They're often kind of protected by shields or unwritten rules that you never go after a, a president for anything um, when it comes to to kind of criminal nature. Uh, and here we are now with Donald Trump facing what could be dozens of charges in this sealed indictment. We don't know what's inside the indictment. That'll be unsealed when he's arraigned likely next week. But it all stems from what appears to be uh, falsified business records linked to payments made to women to keep alleged affairs quiet, facilitated by Michael Cohen, the Manhattan, Manhattan District Attorney's star witness. Um, you know, and the question is, if there are dozens and dozens of charges here, what do they all link back to? And does this mean that there has been other information presented to the grand jury that could potentially delve much further into maybe Trump's business practices than anyone knows? OK, a couple things here. So one, this, this seemed to come as a surprise to people because we'd heard that it might not happen for a couple of weeks, right? A surprise not just to the public, but also to the former president. His team, in two different thought trains, thought, number one, that the case may be falling apart because the Manhattan DA wasn't talking, but also they were supposed to go on a break, and it was talked about that they weren't meeting about things to do with Donald Trump. And for weeks, we've been saying the grand jury meets behind a closed door in almost total secrecy. So everything is kind of based on very, very minimal leaks if they exist. This was a shock to everyone. Wow. Okay. And this is only one case, isn't it? Because the Justice Department has one. The state of Georgia has one. Yes. Uh, so there are some legal experts who say that this could potentially open the Pandora's box here of uh, of how politics is going to move forward, intertwining with the judicial process, because you're right. There are big cases that the former president is up against uh, in Georgia. This has to do with his attempts to overturn the election in that state. And a special grand jury has already recommended an indictment. We're waiting to find out how Fannie Willis is going to move forward with a potential indictment. The uh, ongoing investigations with the federal side, with the uh, January 6th uh, 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 insurrection. That is uh, also something the former president is facing, along with the mishandled classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, where his lawyer had to turn on him at the end of last week and testify before a grand jury. Okay, you kind of need a spreadsheet to keep all these straight about what is going on here. So Georgia is about pressuring Georgia election officials, right, to overturn the results? Yes, that's when the former president made a phone call to the Secretary of State saying we need to find 11,000 and some odd votes. Okay, and then the Justice Department is about the insurrection around that and the classified documents. And what we're hearing now with this indictment, this is about the so-called hush payments, 
This is the so-called hush money payments and a possible link back to falsified business records, which in New York are felonies. But if the falsified business records are being used to conceal another crime, something like a campaign finance violation, which Michael Cohen went to jail for because he was convicted of it, that could bring this up to huh. a felony. But there are dozens and dozens of charges. So that's the question. What else is going on here? Okay, so what is happening now then? So if he was indicted in uh, Manhattan in New York City and he is in Florida, what happens now? Well, he was in Florida last night, almost acting like nothing was happening. He went out for dinner with Melania. He met with some supporters and people within his inner circle. he is expected in New York to be arraigned likely uh, on Tuesday is what we're hearing. And the, the the prosecutors want to treat it like any other case as much as they can. He will be fingerprinted. He will be photographed uh, and he will have charges read against him before a judge. He will likely then be released on his own recognizance to appear back whenever the next court case happens. This is now going to start a domino effect of how this trial is going to take part. It's also put police in New York on full alert. All members of the police department have been told to show up in uniform today uh, because, remember, Trump himself put on his social media account, quote, unquote, death and destruction will happen if an indictment comes forward. Oh, boy. Okay, that's just one story out of the United States in this past week. Another is, of course, the shooting that happened in Nashville. There is just so much going on with this, like a lot of politics involved in this, too, Reggie. There's politics involved in any uh, uh, gun-related matter or story in in this country. Uh, And and once again, the question is, uh, what can be done to stop uh, weapons, uh, assault weapons being in the hands of ordinary citizens? Uh, Because you had this person walk into a uh, religious school, a Christian school, kill three uh, staff members, faculty members, three children in and around nine years old before that person ultimately died uh, during a shootout with police. Republicans pushing back, saying, Again, now is not the time for politics to play into the conversation on on weapons. Democrats are saying, look, we need to do more. The uh, the president has said that he's exhausted what he can do when it comes to executive action, calling Congress to do something. Republicans pushed back and said, there's nothing left for us to do. So we basically need to move forward. That is why this becomes a cyclical conversation. Okay, so there's that. And a couple of the stories we wanted to talk to you about this morning, too, like and this one kind of fell under the radar, I feel like, even though so many people have a vested interest in this one. And this has to do with the subject of the first season of the serial podcast, Adnan Syed, who had his murder conviction reinstated on a technicality. Uh, what essentially what happened here is he this 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 conviction is only going to basically be put back in place for a very short period of time. And it's because uh, the victim's family wasn't given enough time to be able to come to the court to be able to take part in the hearing on his release. They were essentially told from what we understand the night before uh, and they had to appear via Zoom. So it's kind of the question of, you know, is technology in the courts? Are they kind of in tandem yet? Uh, and because they didn't have enough time and they wanted to be there and victims' rights obviously are an important part of the judicial process, the conviction was reinstated so that they can essentially replay the hearing, reintroduce all of that evidence, and then explain uh, how it's going to happen and let the victim's family make a statement. So it is not a full conviction. It is likely he is not going back to jail, but it goes to show that there are still um, issues to be worked out in how courts move forward in this new technological era. Okay, that one is such an interesting one. It's this case that never ends. Uh, And as well, the story out of Idaho, 
Um, and, and this seems to be happening state by state where every state seems to be coming up with some rules dealing with abortion. But this is a this is a new one in Idaho. This is a new one, uh, which is going to make it impossible for anybody to assist uh, somebody in getting an abortion outside of the state. Uh, there are also far more kind of vile uh, and, and apologies for the editorialness on this, but gross um, additions to what the state is trying to do, uh, especially if somebody is intending to get an abortion. Somebody can file a lawsuit to stop that, including a possible rapist who may be the father will now be able to petition the court to stop somebody what? from getting an abortion. This what? is what the, this is what the state is trying to put forward now. We Idaho has some of the strictest uh, rules in place. They are slowly starting to you know allow abortion if there is harm to the mother or in cases of incest. But again, there are other parts of the uh, of the bill that are being rewritten once again. So you know it's making it more difficult for somebody in a state surrounded by other states that allow for abortion to take place to actually get a procedure that this person wants. Okay, but that that one that rule seems like way too far. Way too far. Like and I've heard about other ones happening in some other states too, like in what it just it just feels like having left this to the states now, there's quite a patchwork of what's going on, isn't it? There is. And this was the concern after it was rolled back, after Roe v. Wade was rolled back uh, last summer, that it was going to allow for states to essentially go rogue with how they intend to move forward with their own legislation. Remember, too, we're also waiting on uh, a Texas judge to make his decision on whether or not medication abortion is going to be uh, outlawed across the country pending a likely appeals process. So it's getting more difficult, even in states where abortion is allowed, for a woman to be able to go out and safely access the procedure that she needs because states far away are trying to change the laws uh, of the land because there is simply no more constitutional right for a woman to take care of her body in the way that she deems it necessary. Also not giving doctors the chance either. I guess it sounds like legislators are going to be able to decide when a mother's life is in jeopardy. That's part of some of the amendments that are being written, especially in Idaho, where again, a doctor will come forward. And look, there are a lot of doctors right now who don't want to um, find themselves having to go to jail. So they're working kind of under the shroud of, of secrecy here to ensure that a woman can get wow. the, the care that she needs. Look, there are some private organizations that are now hiring small private planes to be able to fly women around because a private jet often doesn't need to register itself with passengers to land at a smaller airport. This is something that's now starting up around the country. It's costly, but this is where America is at in a post-Roe world. Oh, boy. All right, Reggie, thank you so much for all that. Thank you. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Three years ago in Nova Scotia, 22 people were killed in a horrible mass shooting. Went on for two days. It seemed like the entire time the public knew so little about what was going on. They just weren't given the information. And it took an outpouring of public demand for an inquiry to delve into what was going on behind the scenes with police. Now the report that looked into all of that has come out. For the RCMP, oh, there is a lot to learn here. Let's break it all down now. Alicia Drouse joins us now, reporter with Global News Halifax. Good morning, Alicia. 
Good morning. How's it going? It's going. This, this report is some fascinating reading in here and certainly not very flattering to the RCMP. Can you break it down for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so there is a lot to break down. So the report itself is over 3,000 pages. It's divided into seven volumes. So there's a lot to go through. And one thing the commissioners did really emphasize yesterday before they presented the report was that both the report and, and the public inquiry itself were never actually about laying blame, um, but rather about just investigating the causes, the context, the circumstances that really gave rise to the mass casualty of course, at police response and the steps that were taken to inform and, you know, engage the victims, families and just the public in general. And so the report included a total of 130 recommendations. So as you mentioned, police, uh, a lot of kind of scathing details in this report, over half the recommendations were specifically about policing. Wow. Okay. Some of the things that really struck me in here too was the communication issue, uh, specifically how the RCMP communicated with the public. What did the report say about that, the kind of failure there was there? Yeah, absolutely. So that was kind of an issue right from the get-go. So the report found that, you know, RCMP pretty early on, speaking to a lot of witnesses, heard over and over again exactly who the gunman was and that he was driving a a replica RCMP vehicle. So they knew that, you know, almost instantly. And it took over 11 hours for that information to get out to the public. And even outside of that information, just any information at all really didn't come out to the public. So about... Um, at 11.30, so I think about an hour after kind of things started happening, RCMP put out a tweet, just a tweet, saying that they were responding to a weapons complaint in the port pick area and that residents should lock their doors. Nothing else. And then there was no other information until the next morning when another tweet was issued just saying they were still on the scene. At this point, you know, they had known that there were multiple casualties, but there was no mention of that in the tweet, no mention of anyone being injured or killed, and and still no information that the suspect was driving a replica RCMP vehicle. So the report really kind of criticized that, and family members had said previously that had, say, an emergency alert gone out, it would have saved lives the morning of April 19th. And so the report does recommend that, federal, provincial, territorial governments really look at the use and reevaluate the use of emergency alerts and and the alert-ready system and kind of come up with a way to ensure that these systems can and will be used for, you know, really any type of emergency, including these life-threatening emergencies that we saw happen in April 2020. Do we know what was going on behind the scenes then with police in terms of why? Why did RCMP take so long to tell the public? Was there confusion? Did they not what was happening? Like what was going on? Yeah, so there was just a lot of lack of communication just within the RCMP itself. So it sounds like, you know, some RCMP members had maybe suggested, hey, may, you know, maybe we use some kind of emergency alert. But then others said, no, you know what, that's not what the emergency alert is used for, or the emergency alert has never been used for something like that. That was the big thing. It's never been used. And so they didn't really know, I guess, the protocol to do that. Um, they had said that, you know, the next morning they were getting ready to potentially issue an emergency alert. But by the time you know, that actually would have been ready. The killer had already been um, caught and killed himself. So, yeah, it's just really a lack of communication within the organization itself. And so, uh, again, the recommendations really look at that and kind of say that there needs to be a whole kind of reevaluation of 
of policing services, communications within the system and things like that. What did it say about missing chances to deal with this shooter prior to this event unfolding? Because he had come across their radar before, hadn't he? Yeah, he had come across the radar radar multiple times. So there was multiple instances. There was an assault on a 15-year-old outside his denturist office in Dartmouth uh, years ago. That had been reported to police. Uh, neighbors had reported concerns about domestic abuse uh, from him, as well as the fact that he had illegal firearms um, in his in his home. These things had never fully or properly been investigated. Um, and one of the things, too, is that even any report that was filed, they, you know, got rid of the reports after several years. So when a set, when something else happened years down the road, they never, you know, had those initial reports to oh. see, oh, this is a pattern. Really? Um, so, you know, just record keeping is a big problem. And so, and the other big thing is just looking at gender-based violence. So the report found that most mass casualties, um, the perpetrators have a history of, of gender-based violence and, um, you know, abuse towards their, their spouse or their common-law partners. And so it really looks at kind of a societal shift in addressing gender-based violence. And, and that's where the report also kind of speaks to all Canadians, saying that Canadians in general need to stand up and speak out. And it specifically points to men saying, you know, men really need to take the lead on this because women have been advocating for women's safety for for years. But it's time that men step up too and call things out when something's not right. Now, has there, Alicia, been any fallout from the scathing nature of this report from within the RCMP? Like, what was their official response here? So the fallout itself, I mean, it's still early days. Obviously, the report just came out yesterday at noon. So I wouldn't say there's been, I guess, really any fallout. The other, I guess, important thing to note is that we've seen a lot of, I guess, turnover or um, all the senior RCMP officials who kind of were part of this response are no longer with the RCMP. They either got other jobs or retired, and that includes the then commissioner, Brenda Lucky. So she retired. So it's a new commissioner, so we're already seeing some new staff. In response yesterday, they said that, you know, they're they're looking to address uh, the recommendations, but they need time to go over the report before they can really make any, any full comment. So not a lot of details on, you know, what we're going to see happen, but... Um, lots of recommendations to go through. This isn't the first time they've seen a report like this either. So is it true, though, that they had the ability to communicate differently, but nobody had been trained on the right way to use the equipment? Like the equipment was there, but they just weren't using it? And yeah, that that's part of the issue. Um, like I mentioned, like with the emergency alert, it, the issue is just it had never been used in a system like this or in an issue like this before. So they, they didn't quite know what to do. Um, also, I mean, even outside of communication, there was just different technologies that they had they, they weren't aware to use. So um, there was in a, when they were looking at the geography of the area, they blocked off Port-a-Pic Beach Road where things had been happening. Um, but they didn't realize there was another escape route. So the gunman had actually escaped using a back dirt road 20 minutes after police arrived on scene. So he escaped when police were already there. And police have, or RCMP have a way to kind of map out geographical areas, like a techno, like a, a map service, I guess, uh, to look at, you know, the topographical um areas mm-hmm. but the RCMP at the time the officer who kind of was in charge of figuring out where everyone was and the area didn't know how to use that specific program he had never been trained on it so it's just issues like this like they have a lot of different technologies that can be used in emergency responses but it seems the training isn't consistent 
when it needs to be. Oh boy, there's so much to go through in this. Alicia, thank you so much for that. All right, thank you so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. How much do you know about the dark web or cryptocurrency? What goes on in the markets where cryptocurrency is traded? Well, those crypto markets are pretty busy places, and new research shows that these places are where there's a lot of drug dealing and sales of illicit goods going on. So how does that impact us here in BC? Well, there's been research done on this, actually, and Dr. Richard Frank is with us now, a professor of criminology and director of the International Cybercrime Research Center at SFU. Dr. Frank, thanks for being here. Hi, good morning. So tell us about your research then. What have you been looking into? Uh, in terms of uh, the crypto market, uh, our uh, focus was to estimate uh, how large the marketplace is here in BC, how much drugs are being sold, um, and just inform the police uh, so they know roughly what it is. Right. And so what was it? What did you find? Uh, well, in terms of... Uh, Estimating the marketplace for BC, it's um, quite difficult because uh, these places ship uh, from anywhere, from any country, um, into any province. Uh, sometimes if it's domestic, uh, we don't know which province it ships from or which uh, province it ships to. So estimating in BC is um, very difficult. But um, in terms of size, um, it it's big. Um, we're talking about, about $160 million of traffic, but uh, it's quite small compared to actual physical drug trafficking. Right, but there is a lot of that going on right here in BC. Uh, there is, yes. Um, it, there are a couple of advantages to buying online. Um, I'm not promoting the these crypto markets or their um, activities, but um, they're safe if uh, you don't want to be assaulted um, on the street. The product is uh, somewhat consistent, uh, but um, I mean, obviously, uh, police are looking into this. And um, again, I'm not advocating uh, the purchase of drugs, but um, there are some advantages. So that's why people are using it. I guess I wonder then that if there are those advantages for the people who are using it, then how are we supposed to combat it? Well, police have taken some of these marketplaces down and uh, have gone after not only the people who run them, but also the uh, vendors and the customers. So uh, police are active and they are investigating. Right. But that makes it especially challenging, though, doesn't it? Well, the whole marketplace uh, and everything on it is supposed to be anonymous, uh, encrypted. It is a big challenge for police. Um, Sometimes it's not the police, sometimes it's uh, security companies that take these uh, marketplaces down. But um, overall, these are very challenging uh, things. But the people who are running it, uh, the vendors, the customers, everyone behind the screen is is human. um, And humans make mistakes. And sometimes um, these slip-ups will be what police need in order for them to identify the individual. Right, but Dr. Frank, you must look at this about like all over the world. Are there other jurisdictions who've tackled this in a different way? Uh, Many crypto markets have been shut down. Um, Not just uh, U.S. is very active in um, investigating these. Uh, The Netherlands is also excellent at uh, shutting these down. Uh, a couple of years ago, they took one uh, marketplace down and uh, they posted uh, the usernames of people who they were investigating. It's sort of a psychological um, aspect to the whole thing, um, to scare people that, yes, we know you're, uh, you've bought stuff here and uh, we're coming after you. 
Right. So obviously something that you think, should we be looking at that here then? Um, the police here do the, um, this. Um, so they, they do these investigations. Um, yes. Right. So what can we learn from this? Um, sorry, from uh, what uh, perspective? I'm just saying, like, from your research, what do you think is the big takeaway here? Oh, I see. Um, well, these marketplaces, um, it's a good idea to periodically do these uh, surveys of uh, these marketplaces to see how they are evolving. We know about 80% of uh, the things on these um, uh, marketplaces are drugs. It would be interesting to see how that increases or decreases um, to see what sort of problems we're going to be facing. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Okay, thank you. That's Dr. Richard Frank, a professor of criminology and the director of the International Cybercrime Research Center at Simon Fraser University. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. All right, let's talk about money laundering in our province because we know, we all have questions, right? You know, you see someone with a very expensive car or a really luxurious house and you wonder, yeah, but what do they do for a living? Where do they get the money for this? Well, new legislation tabled here in BC would allow the provincial government to ask that question. And if the proceeds can't be proven, if it's the result of criminal proceeds or money laundering, they will then move to seize those assets potentially. So is this a good way to tackle money laundering? Will it actually make criminals think twice? Well, Peter German is the founder and principal of Peter German and Associates. And of course, he wrote the Dirty Money Report here in BC, joins us now to talk about it. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. What did you think about this, this new legislation tabled yesterday? Well, I was very pleased. Uh, it's uh, it's a topic that's been discussed. Uh, you mentioned my dirty money reports. We mentioned it back then. I had this discussion with the Attorney General, as he then was, back a few years. He was always very keen on the idea. I'm, I'm uh, really quite excited that uh, the province has uh, gone ahead with this uh, idea. Do you think this is a deterrent? What it is is a strong message. Uh, we will be the only jurisdiction in Canada, provincial or federal, that has UWOs or many countries that have them, but we'll be the first jurisdiction in Canada. So it really does uh, send a strong message. And uh, I think it will have a deterrent effect of sorts, um, but to what extent, it's obviously hard to measure. Okay, so when you say it's it's an unexplained wealth order is what the exact wording is of this. So how does this work then, Peter? How is, the in- how is this intended to work? Right, well, the intention is uh, to deal with uh, people who have a large amount of money, the source of which is unknown but believed to be uh, the proceeds of of crime of one sort or another, and they're essentially uh, asked the question, where did your money come from? And that proceeding would take place before a Supreme Court judge. Um, And, uh, I mean, if they wish to disclose where the money came from, that's fine. But if they choose not to, then there is a proceeding, and at the end of it, there will be a decision made whether a presumption can be made that it was the sor- it was sourced from illegal illegal uh, activity, and in that case, civil forfeiture proceedings could subsequently take place that um, in, in which that presumption will be used. Right. So it, it's not like an instant. You know, your house is gone. There's there's a process involved here. I guess I wonder then how will these assets be flagged? Like, how will they come to the notice of police and how, how will this process get underway? Yeah, well, good question. Uh, take, for example, uh, recently, um, 
two money laundering, criminal money laundering investigations have collapsed in this province, received a lot of uh, notoriety, one uh, just this year and another a couple of years ago. Um, so for whatever reason, those cases cannot proceed in the criminal courts, um, but the police are still you know, uh, aware of uh, substantial funds and, and the source of which can't be explained. So those would be the, the ideal cases that would be referred to, uh, and they already have been, as we know, uh, to civil forfeiture um, for, for their the civil forfeiture unit. And, and those folks will then examine those cases to see whether civil proceedings can be taken against the property. So we're not putting people in jail with this mechanism. It's it's totally civil. And the, and the test in our civil law is a lower standard than in our criminal law. It's, it's a balance of probabilities. Where did this come from? Right. So there's an investigation. Police have a suspicious person. They see the suspicious person going to a very nice house every day with some very expensive cars, but they don't know where the money came from. And they can say, well, you know what? Let's find out. Uh, yes. I mean, it's in simple form, that's what uh, would uh, what's involved. But uh, there will be an obligation under this legislation, as I understand it, for the police to have a, a basis for believing that the, the money came from an illegal source. So they're not just going to be driving down the street looking for people with big houses. That's not the intent. Uh, but this is really going to, I presume, be reserved for the most difficult of cases and, and the large money cases. Uh, and it's a great tool in the toolbox. So when you look at other jurisdictions, you said that have this, not in Canada, but outside of Canada, has it been effective? Has it been used? Well, the one that received a lot of notoriety is England. And England brought in UWOs a, a couple, a few years ago. And the, the first case that was brought in England involved a woman who spent 16 million pounds at Harrods department store. Now, Simi, that would be difficult to do at the best of times. Uh, yeah. $60 million at a department store. But but she did. Uh, but where did she get the money? Nobody knew. She was from Azerbaijan. And her husband um, was did not have an income that would support you know, that type of spending. So the, the question was asked, where did you get your money? And the process took a while. I think it was about a two-year uh, court battle. But she was eventually ordered to disclose the source of her wealth. And, of course, the, the belief had been that, you know, this was uh, the proceeds of corruption in her home country. Uh, so that's the type of case where, you know, a UWO comes in handy. Because if you had no means of asking a person uh, or, you know, compelling them to tell you, then, you know, the question remains, uh, there's nothing that can be done. Oh, so this does sound to be then an effective way to do this. But this, as you pointed out in your report too, there are many steps that need to be taken, right? And this is one step. So would you say, Peter, are we making progress from what you wrote well, in your report? Oh, great question. Uh, I have said repeatedly that we cannot forget about criminal forfeiture. So criminal forfeiture is designed to not only take away the proceeds of crime, drug trafficking, and so forth, but also people would go to jail. So people go to jail and they lose their property. So there's a disincentive. The problem with civil forfeiture is it is really filling a gap. If our criminal uh, criminal system is not working sufficiently well to allow for these types of prosecutions, then civil forfeiture at the provincial level fills that gap. But it doesn't put people in jail. So really, they're giving back money they shouldn't have had in the first place. So my, my point has always been, we need a balance of both criminal and civil forfeiture. And this province is doing very well in terms of civil forfeiture right now. It's very efficient, very effective. 
but we're not doing so well on the criminal side. And that's a product of both federal legislation and enforcement requirements at the provincial and federal levels. Right. So we're doing what we can on the provincial side. We seem to be. And uh, the other, of course, big move in the province here was uh, a beneficial ownership registry for, for land, the Landowner Transparency Act. We are also the first jurisdiction in this country that has uh, a beneficial ownership registry, which requires people to disclose the ultimate owner of their property. And that, I also believe, is a good thing, because in dealing with any of these matters, it's all about transparency, transparency of where your wealth came from, transparency of who owns property, who owns companies, that sort of thing. Very true. All right, Peter, thanks so much for that. Just a pleasure, Simi. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. A lot of draws going on out there, but we really need an outright win here, so that might change for the next three games of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Joining us now is Whitecaps coach Vanny Sartini. Morning, coach. Morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. You've got some big three games coming up here, right? Yeah, yeah. We have uh, next week, basically, starting tomorrow. Uh, we have three games in uh, in seven days, all at BC Place. So two very important games for the league and uh, the quarterfinals of the, of the Champions League. So it's going to be a pretty important week. I can see that, yes. Okay, how, <laughs> how big of um, a deal is it when you're playing at home versus playing on the road? Like, what does that do for you, for the players? Well, means a lot you know especially in a league like uh like uh like mls there's uh where our travel are uh really 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 demanding and to be honest because of ge- of geography we are the team that uh, has the worst travel schedule you know when uh when you have to do every time uh change uh time zone uh, change weather and uh because we are on the pacific coast when we go Every time that we go towards east, we basically lose time, and uh, and uh, our days are shorter in order to prepare the uh, the game uh, uh, that is away. It's a it's a it's a big difference. And on top of that, you can you can put the the fact that uh, playing in front of our fans is a completely different experience than playing against. Uh, some other fans that right. are behind your behind your bench that are not saying some beautiful things to you. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, does it get that aggressive? Really? No. Well, uh, uh, to be honest, n- not every time. Most of the time, uh, and uh, to, I like also to engage in some banter with some the people behind me that they say something maybe to make me angry and I. I just answered to them with a joke or something. So that's uh, <laughs> and, brave. Uh, and uh, and most of the time it ends with uh, with them uh, uh, laughing and uh, having a great experience till the end of the game. But sometimes you you uh, you have uh, you know some someone someone more aggressive. And uh, I remember yeah. a couple of weeks ago uh, called my I called my mom in. Uh, in um, in Italy, and I say, hey, did did you hear something in your in your ear yesterday? Because they called your name a lot of time behind me. So that's the thing, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> that is unfortunate. <laughs> You've got Montreal tomorrow. So what do we know about them? Well, it's a team that changed a lot from last year. Last year they did a great season, but uh, uh, they sold a couple of them very important players to Europe and. Uh, so it's a new team, and uh, they're still 
I would say, struggling to find their own identity. So we need to exploit that. We need to exploit that. We need to, we need to be able to uh, not make them, uh, I would say, confident on the field. They have a couple of good players. Uh, but I think that uh, uh, we have the skills and the capabilities to, to take all the three points tomorrow. I think so, too. Listen, good luck tomorrow. Thank you so much. Yeah, have a you. good day and have a good game tomorrow. That is Vanny Sartini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps, looking for the win, playing Montreal tomorrow. And don't forget, you can catch all those Vancouver Whitecaps games on our sister station, AM 730. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. We're going to tell you about a, a new movie that is premiering here in Vancouver. It's at Fifth Avenue Cinemas, actually tonight. It's not really your everyday movie, though. This one is special. It focuses on representation. The cast includes a neurodiverse actor, Jonathan Samoa, playing someone who is on the spectrum. And that person is actually really a reflection of the writer and the director, Connie Kochia's brother. So we're joined by Connie Kochia now and Jonathan to find out more about the film. And first off, we wanted to know from Connie uh, about the premise of When Time Got Louder. When Time Got Louder is a coming-of-age story that follows Abby, who's played by the wonderful Willow Shields from Hunger Games, and her brother Caden, who's played by Jonathan Sameo. And it focuses on this time in uh, Abby's life when she departs for college and leaves behind her brother to pursue her own dreams and uh, experience her own independence and first love for the first time. But her brother really struggles in her absence. And so it's a really beautiful coming-of-age family drama that focuses on just this beautiful, unconditional bond that her and her brother have. Okay, so that's Connie Kakia, who is the writer and the director of this movie. And it sounds amazing. It's called When Time Got Louder, premiering tonight at Fifth Avenue at Vancouver. We also wanted to ask Connie, though, what what, what is the inspiration behind this movie? Yeah, I have a brother who's on the autism spectrum and is more profoundly impacted and is nonverbal. And so it was very important to me to create a character like Caden, who shows these characteristics. You know, there's some spectacular autism content out there, but it usually shows savant and gifted like individuals. And while these are beautiful stories that absolutely should be told, they really only reflect about 10% of the autism community. So it was really important to me that we could show the perspective of how autism impacts a family in this way with somebody like Caden, like my brother, who, uh, you know, really struggles on a day-to-day basis with some of the challenges that they face. Right. So on that note, then the actor playing the lead role, Jonathan Sameo, is on the spectrum as well. And so we wanted to know how did it feel playing a non-verbal neurodiverse character? So as someone who's been acting for 10 years and auditioning for 10 years as someone on the spectrum, it hasn't always been easy to to audition for roles. Um, and I find for me, especially, it can uh, be quite challenging for me to uh, admit certain lines at moments. So when I found out uh, about the role of Caden, that he was nonverbal, I actually felt a sense of relief uh, that I wouldn't have to worry or struggle with any uh, line delivery and I could just emit noises and uh, some behaviors that I would actually have to hide from everyday life, I actually felt that I could show them in this character. And so when I played this character, I felt 
very free and more authentic, like I could actually be myself. So we talk a lot about representation in movies, right? And how important it is for the cast to reflect that. So we wanted to ask as well, the people involved in this movie, why it is so important for films to cast neurodiverse actors for films that do involve people who are on the spectrum. Yeah, you know, it's really important that we provide these opportunities first and foremost to neurodivergent individuals. And I think Jonathan's such a spectacular example of an actor who has such incredible talent and provided the opportunity can play a role like Caden just as well, if not better than his neurotypical counterparts. And uh, and I think that just really speaks to not only that we need to provide more opportunities to neurodivergent individuals in this industry and, and in our society on a day-to-day basis, but also just speaks upon, you know, the importance of when you cast an actor authentically to connect with their character, be it Jonathan with, with Caden or, you know, both of our wonderful actresses, Willow Shields and Ava Capri being openly queer women to play the queer love story. Um, It really provides a beautiful opportunity for these actors to connect with the roles in a way that maybe somebody that doesn't have that authentic connection could bring to the character. Yeah, and I think it's also um, important for authentic representation in the sense that, you know, a neurotypical could easily uh, copy or mimic behaviors that, that someone on the spectrum could do. I find that it wouldn't have the same effect that a uh, someone on the, on the spectrum authentically portraying themselves because they won't easily as easily understand what it's like to be in that world. And I find it won't come off as impactfully or as authentically as it would as someone on the spectrum would portray it um, because only someone on the spectrum would understand what it's like to be overstimulated by like this by very slight triggers like an example would be uh like loud bus noises or very large crowds being able to bring that to a role could have a very a much more powerful impact on the audience because they're bringing their own experiences their own perspective and their your own unique mindset to this character that a uh, neurotypical wouldn't normally bring to it That brings up a really good point though, right? When you think about what neurodiverse people experience on a day-to-day basis, like auditory processing disorder, maybe they have difficulty with large crowds or perhaps they are sensitive to bright lights. So was any of that taken into account when producing this film to make it more accessible to a neurodiverse audience? Yeah, you know, that's a a great question. And, you know, there is no, uh, you know, flashing lights. My brother suffers from um, seizures. So it's something I'm very, very familiar with. And, you know, there isn't anything pertaining that would trigger somebody uh, visually or auditorially. However, one thing that's good to know about our film is, you know, there, there are some challenging scenes that Jonathan portrays so beautifully that feel very real. Um, You know, scenes where the boy's really struggling um, with his sister's absence. There's scenes of bullying and scenes of self-harm. So a question that I'm commonly asked is if my brother's seen the film and the answer is no. And that's mostly because he wouldn't really, um, enjoy and see benefit in seeing some of the harder scenes in that film. So I wouldn't say our film is 
geared towards uh, individuals who are on the autism spectrum because the content is harder, though I will say we've had some spectacular individuals come talk to us after film festivals, especially here at VIF um, and with our connection to the Pacific Autism Family Network that have really shared a beautiful connection that they have to the material, but it is very heavy and some sensitive uh, content. So usually our audience is more about the family uh, dynamic and family members that come and see the film. And, and just the general public, you know, we really want our film to hopefully spread some awareness and some um, give, you know, a closer intimate look on what these families go through on a day to day basis. And that's a big theme within our story and what happens to Caden, you know, there's something very traumatic that takes place. And we really want society to have a better understanding of the autism community and how we can help these individuals and how we can include them. You know, it's autism uh World Autism Month in April, which is something we're all really excited about our film coming out during. Um, and it really is just about, you know, meaningful inclusion of, you know, from Jonathan and the other members of our film that are uh, neurodivergent and in their involvement to other industries and just in society. Uh, we want to focus on more inclusion and opportunity for these individuals. So the movie is called When Time Got Louder. It is premiering tonight at Fifth Avenue Cinemas in Vancouver. We also wanted to know, like, what do they hope audience members will take away from this film? So what I really hope people take away from this is that, you know, individuals on the autism spectrum, everyone is affected differently. And, um, you know, it's not necessarily something to be ashamed of. And it's something that I believe that can help. The more awareness we have of autism, the more we can understand it and the more we can work around individuals who are diagnosed as being on the spectrum. I really hope people take away from this is that autism is just a uh, difference in brain chemistry, just like a uh, any brain is different from any other brain. You could have an autism, a, a person who has autism in the same room as a neurotypical, and it would be the exact same situation as a neurotypical in the same room with another neurotypical, two different brains with different pathways. It's just someone on the autism spectrum has a different brain chemistry, but that's the same with everyone else. I believe that people on the spectrum have a unique sense of the world and a sensitivity to it that that most people don't seem to understand as well. And what I hope people take away from this is that they can now see what it's like to live in that world, to have these experiences and understand that it's not a gift. It's not a uh, defect. It's just another individual. It's Connie Kokia, writer and director of When Time Got Louder and Jonathan Sameo, who's the actor who plays the main role of Caden. Their movie premieres tonight at the Fifth Avenue Cinemas here in Vancouver. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.